we get to use the marker board tonight. You may want to take me down just a tad, as usual. I'll be scrum. I must be a lot louder than Amy. That's what that is. Is it Amy? Oh, sorry. Open your Bibles up if you'd be willing to the book of James. And uh, there's an issue that I ran into down south. Um, grew up in northern Indiana, and I've traveled around the country since 1996-ish, I guess, some, some 1995, but mostly 1996, and get to see the church, <clears throat> you know, in a variety of different cultures. And, you know, out west and out east, you know, they're just weird, but... <laughs> North and south, even though it's only divided by eight hours, are you with me, teens? Is an entirely, they're just entirely two different planets. Um, we moved down to Tennessee. It's central in the United States. We started a school there, and it was awesome. And when we first got down there, kind of the, the southern hospitality, the yes ma'am, no ma'am, you know, I mean, I picked it up immediately. We went through the drive-through. I mean, they take your order, uh, they receive your money, they give you a hug. Uh, seriously, it's incredible. Up here, they just insult you, and they're like, "Take your food, shut up, get out of there." And you know, it's just up north. And so I, I immediately thought, you know, down south, they're just, you know, they're different. You know, they're not really different. They just hide it a lot better. <laughs> Seriously, up north, we just tell you the truth. Down there, they feel the same. They just lie to you. And uh, all joking aside, it's very, very, very on the mark. One of the things I begin to pick up, and we talked about it this morning, is, is I live in an extremely, an extremely saturated religious area. Uh, at, at the school I go to down there, they still have some Bible classes in the local school. They allow prayer. Uh, you can leave the school twice a week to go to church during the, during the school days. You can have your pastor pick you up. Um, I mean, it's just, and we first, and there's a church on every corner, and we got down there, and we just thought it was, was awesome. And there are aspects of it that are awesome, but the problem is we kind of begin to pick up on this, this fact that people, they live one way on Sunday, and then they live another way the rest of the week. See, they have clothes that they wear on Sunday, and then they have clothes they wear the rest of the week. They have music that they listen to on Sunday, and they worship to, and they sing to on Sunday, and then music they listen to the rest of the week. They have um, swim, swim attire. They have music, I mean, television shows. They have entertainment choices. We did this camp down there, and uh, one of the rules at the camp um, was you, you couldn't have any uh, secular... Um, music on your iPhones. So we got to this camp and this kid's listening to it and I watched a teen uh, counselor come up and surprise this kid and, and he had to hand over his iPhone. He looks and he says, you're okay. And I went up and I, to the teen. I was like, what's that all about? He goes, oh, he's checking for secular music. And he's like, so I took all that off before I came to camp. <laughs> you know how sad that is? And it does. I mean, my, 
I've got, I've got a son that's 14, and I'm doing a teen camp this summer, which is difficult because I don't even like teens, <laughs> you know, and I like, I like college students even less, but, <laughs> but primarily I find myself reaching out to that generation because I've, I'm finding pretty typically, probably not here, but pretty typically there are very few of that generation that wants to stand up and, 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 and be a voice among their own generation. And I just, I do, I just expect more of you than that. I'm, I'm waiting, I'm waiting for someone from that age group to stand up and say, hey, I'm, I'm going flat out after him. What's going on in, 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 in my area is there's this, there's this rebuttal, there's this excuse that's offered, and I hear it in, in church and been to begin to pick up on it. People down there tend to say, well, hey, man, no one's perfect. No one's perfect. And I agree with that, but I don't know I, if I tell them I agree with that, but I don't think I agree with you. They say, what do you mean? Well, I agree. It's very, very, very clear. And teens, just stay with me on this. And adults, this is, if you lose me, if I lose you, if we get lost, you may, it's subtle. There's a difference, listen, there's a difference between sin and sin. There's a difference between mistakes and rebellion. There's a difference between error, wrong, and looking at Jesus and saying no. And so I meet people all the time, at least in our area, and we're beginning to see it's, it's a little bit everywhere, but it's, it's really prevalent down there. Where people say stuff like, you know, come on, no one's perfect. You know, hey, everybody sins once in a while. And believe it or not, I biblically agree with that. But what do you mean by people sin? By people make mistakes? Are you talking about, you know, you having an affair with your neighbor? I ain't buying that. Are you talking about an accident? See, what, what, do, you, what do you mean when you're dealing with this? I, I've, been, I've been walking through James, and just really quickly as we began this morning, it's, it's a phenomenal letter. It's the first letter written in our New Testament. James is writing the early church. In chapter one, he lays out the message, which is all about God and man living in intimacy together to such an extent that he changes you. Hear me on this. If you are a Christian, you are literally a different person. You're going to feel different. You have two people living in your body, you and God. So Christianity is not about I come to church on Sunday. It's not about I'm a good moral person. It's not about I don't lie. I don't steal. Uh, it's not about I wear the right clothes. I listen to the right music. I don't do bad things. I do do good things. None of that has, has much to do with Christianity. Christianity is about God coming down inside of my life and his very person changes who I am to such an extent that I'm a new creation. That's the message in, in, uh, in James chapter 1. When you come into chapters 2 through 5, he addresses issues in the early church. And we looked at one this morning, which is the second issue, which is in chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. And it's the issue of religion. It's basically, there's people in his day and age who come to church on Sunday, they're very religious, you know, they read the Bible, they do good works, but it doesn't really carry over from Monday through Saturday, they're just religious. They're not impacting their world. They're not a different person. They mask. They camouflage. 
And so in chapters two through five, he's dealing with these issues that blockade us from being who God wants us to be. And so I saved this for this evening. We can pull us all together. I want to look at the first issue and it's the issue of favoritism. And I want you to look at this for yourself. So if you have your Bibles, focus with me in with me on James chapter one or excuse me, chapter two, I'm just going to read verse one, and, and we're going to probably focus in on verses eight and nine in this section. But James chapter one reads, my brethren, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Um, if you have anybody in here who's bilingual, or you know someone who's bilingual, or you know anything about multiple languages, there is no, and we'll talk about that tomorrow night, by the way, which will be a blast. But there is no such thing as a translation from one language into another in terms of direct word for word. It just doesn't work like that. In other words, if you're, you know, you know English and you want to learn Spanish, it's not like you just go learn a bunch of Spanish words and then you plug them in where you would normally say English words. It doesn't work like that. You're bilingual. Yes. So I'm correct. Told you. Okay. So... And also, certain terms in certain cultures, and this is hysterical, one of the, when you get older, your forms of entertainment change, and uh, I'm stuck in church four days a week, so one of my favorite forms of entertainment is to watch teenagers and senior adults communicate. (laughs) It's hysterical, seriously. It's literally hysterical. Because teens will come up and they're talking fast and using all this terminology and they walk away and grandma's like, I I have no idea what they're talking about. And then I get it on YouTube and it's funny. Because they have different terms. And if I were just to be honest, if you go back in the 1950s and you walk around, you're going to hear the term gay mentioned. It means a little different, something a little different today than it did then. There's a variety of terms like that that we use now that don't mean what they used to mean when they were used back then. Same thing biblically. When we read in this passage, and it's really strong, there are four places in the New Testament, all with the same command as Christians, you and I do not show favoritism. Now, immediately, I had, I had a problem with that, and I kind of knew something was going to be quirky with the word because it's not bad to have favorites. You can have a favorite friend, a best friend, a favorite food, a favorite activity. There's, in terms of worship, we have, um, we're, we're a little bit slower in the South <laughs> in a variety of ways, but I'm talking specifically about trends, about trends. And we're going through a lot of worship kind of struggles in the South. And there's this understanding or there's this idea that somehow if you like one type of worship over against another type of worship, you could be wrong that there's actually the right kind of worship. And if we could just find the right kind of worship, the worship that God would want, we'd all be fine. None of that's true. There's nothing wrong with having a a style of music which is your favorite. Mine is heavy metal. (laughs) Seriously. I'd rather chew broken glass and listen to Southern Gospel, but, you know, hey. And I live in the South, all right? So there's nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing wrong with Southern Gospel. Hey, Southern Gospel it up. Thing is great. So in terms of favoritism, in our understanding, favoritism is not bad. But that's not this definition of favoritism. This word for favoritism, hear this, this word for favoritism is made up of two Greek words. They're made up of the words outward and countenance. So if you show favoritism, what's going on in showing favoritism is an outward countenance. In other words, you favor someone because of their outward. 
and God does not do that. God looks at the, looks at the condition of the heart. It's not just outward. He gives an example of it in verses 2 and 3, and he says, don't show favoritism, and then says, listen, what would that look like if someone comes into your church who has a lot of money, and you favor them over someone who does not have money, you don't see the way God sees. The fundamental of favoritism is God looks at the matter of the heart, not the outside. So if I don't look at the heart and I look at the outside, ultimately I don't see the way he sees. So the real issue is God sees this way and I see this way, which is not Christianity. Are you with me? I struggle when I don't see your eyes. Okay? So the fundamental flaw and what he's talking about ultimately is sin is God sees this way and I see that way. That's the nature of favoritism. So favoritism is a focus on the outward countenance. I like you because you're good looking. Which is interesting, and I don't know, we can't really go into all this fully, but what I found most striking about this term, favoritism, it's a negative connotation, does not appear anywhere in secular Greek, which means early church writers made it up. Because in a world, we naturally focus on the outside. One of the things I find in our, and it's worse with girls, I think, than guys. Girls in our culture, both young and old, seem to get their identity or at least some kind of emphasis on the outward. Um, they get their identity from their looks. They get their value from their outward countenance, which is devastating because it does not last. Are you listening? It does not last. Look around. <laughs> Seriously. Hey, I used to be the man. I'm telling you. Seriously, I used to be the man. I don't even live next door to the man anymore. Okay? And what's sad is, and you can pick this up a mile away, the young woman who gets her identity from her outward countenance ends up being that 40-year-old woman who's trying to look 20 and doesn't quite get it done. And it's, it is, it breaks your heart because she gets her identity in that. I did a whole teaching on this at a marriage conference, like a two-hour teaching on the effects of sin in the lives of men and women. And there is something about the outward countenance, I believe is in Genesis, that enslaves a woman to beauty. Men don't wear makeup. I mean, seriously, look at us. Just look around at the men. And then look at the women. They're, they're, you, you see what I'm saying? And Paul speaks against adornment. See, this is all favoritism kind of stuff. So this whole section is on not just outward countenance, but literally you and I as Christians are supposed to see the way that he sees. We're supposed to feel the way that he feels. Now, he develops this, and he comes down to an issue that is down in verses 8 and 9. We're not going to mark too much on this board, but visuals are always helpful. In verses 8 and 9, he centers on the issue of why mankind does not see the way God sees. And the issue is sin. And when I first started studying sin in James, I was blown away of the diversity of sin in the New Testament. Did you know that there, this is crazy, there are 33 different Greek words for sin in the New Testament. 33. 
You're like, that's a big topic. It is. They all boil down to 11 different independent Greek words, which are divided up into two categories. And the categories are error and rebellion. Two different understandings of sin in Scripture. Both of these of these ideas are represented in verses eight and nine. And we're really gonna just focus on verse nine. So we're talking about favoritism, and at the crux of favoritism is I don't see the way God sees and why. And we deal with this all the time, and I'll just tell you the punchline before we get into it. If you ever, ever want to live a victorious life in Jesus, you can't live in sin, guys. It's, it's, I mean, it's not rock science. Seriously, you cannot live in sin. You will not make it. And especially if you're parents and you control the spiritual climate of your home, you're literally creating a a climate in which your kids live. You give permission for the demonic forces of the world to enter in your home and control that climate. Literally. So the idea, the fundamental idea of being a child of God and being who God wants us to be comes down to this very issue, which is why it's so broad, broadly spoken of in the New Testament. James, and again, this is the very first issue, because he gives in chapter one, he's like, this is God's dream for your life. But the very first issue is, are you living in sin? And of course, people are going to say, well, come on, no one can live above sin. Well, I think I would agree with that, but what do you mean by that? I mean, come on, everybody runs some old lady off the road once in a while. Come on. Seriously, no one's perfect. No, we don't believe that. Does that mean that you and I never have any kind of sin in our life? Well, what what does that mean biblically, and how do you you walk through that? So I want to walk you through this. This is how James says it. He begins in verse 9. And of course, in verse 8, he describes about a person who's describes a person who's living in a right relationship with God. Verse 8. Then when you come into verse 9, he talks about the guy who's not living in a right relationship with God, and this is the process. He begins in verse 9, and he says, but if you show favoritism. Now, this is how he begins. Favoritism. Favoritism is looking at someone and favoring them because of the outward. We get into this in the church. Well, that guy's obviously a Christian. Why? Well, he's on the board. Well, he's a Sunday school teacher. He's been coming to church his whole life. That's not going to cut it. We looked at this morning. Many on the Lord's day, is, uh, God, many on the day of judgment, are going to say, "Lord, Lord." But not everyone who says "Lord, Lord" gets in. So he says, if you show favoritism, which means the way he sees, you don't see; the way he feels, you don't feel. His priorities are not your priorities. What excites you doesn't excite him. What drives you doesn't drive him. The focus of your life is not his focus. That's favoritism. So he says, if a person does not see the way God sees, that's what favoritism is, he says, you sin. Now, the Greek word for there for sin is the most is on this side, but it's used in the most ver- kind of a, a variety of ways in the New Testament. It's the word, and I'll transliterate it in English, harmatia. Most common word for sin. If you look it up in, an Eng- uh, in a Greek dictionary, its literal definition is error. This word is not focused on motive. 
It's focused on right or wrong. Here's the illustration I give. You have two teenagers. Um, Friday, they've got this teacher that's just a jerk. And that's truth. And you say, well, why would you say that? Because they give a test. I'm going to have a test on Monday over material they haven't been preparing. And so this will require the students to study all weekend. Two students, as an example. The first student is a good student. Not too crazy about the teacher. But she's responsible. She wants a good grade. She wants to maintain her grade point average. So she goes home and she studies all weekend. The other student, he's not too hot about the teacher either. He doesn't care about his GPA. And he says, forget it, I'm winging it. So they come to school on Monday morning. One student studied all weekend. One student didn't study at all. Well, when they get there, the student who studied all weekend realizes she studied the wrong chapter. So they both take the test and they both fail. Now, one student comes up, the good student, who says, but I studied all weekend. But you still were wrong. You both, they both received the same grade, even though the desire and the motive was there for her, and it wasn't for him. So this word, this word for error doesn't focus on, it's like a ticket. It's like when you get a ticket, you're driving down the road. I'm not some lunatic. <laughs> um, I try to obey the speed limit, you know, I'm just rocking out to Petra, you know, the lighter version of Metallica. And, uh, you know, hey, I'm rocking out to Petra, not paying attention, you know, in this car that I borrowed, doing 70 and a 30. And, uh, you know, I'm just kidding. It wasn't your car. And a, and a cop pulls me over. And I said, I didn't mean to, which is absolutely true. He doesn't say, are you sure you really didn't mean to? I promise. Okay, well, since you didn't mean to. No, you, you were wrong. In fact, John Wesley interpreted this, and, and if you don't know who John Wesley is, you should Google him because you're all influenced by him. He defined this term, coined it as missing the mark. It's not a motive term. It's, it's falling short. The idea of missing the mark would be like if I called uh, Paul. I said, hey, man, um, I took up hunting, and I'm killing it. I want to show you. So Paul and I get together during the week. We go to his house. He gets out his bow and arrow, and uh, I bring an apple from the motel. And uh, I say, here, hold this. Go over there. And he does. We're tight, you know. And so, uh, and I tell him, I've been practicing for like, you know, days. And so he goes to the other side. I pull out the bow and the arrow. I reach it. And I'm trying to hit the arrow. I'm not trying to hit Paul. Trying to hit the arrow with my, hey, best intentions. Absolute confident. Hey, I'm a confident guy, right? And so I release the arrow and I kill Paul. Now, the police show up. They would not call because our country... And I don't know how much I want to belabor this. We don't live in a country that's based on Sharia law, which is Islam. We don't live in a country that's based off of Judaism. We don't sacrifice animals. We don't pray at walls. We don't believe in a temple. We don't, we don't, we're a country based on Christian principles. We're not a Christian nation. We're a nation with freedom of religion. But our forefathers based everything in our country on Christian principles. So when my kids disappoint me, I cannot kill them. Yeah, that's Iran. Okay. All right. 
Seriously, go, go overseas and, and check it out. By the way, if you're a woman, we're getting sidetracked. If you're a woman, you'd have to be crazy not to be a Christian. All women's rights come from Jesus. Seriously. If you don't want to be a Christian, go to any other nation under any other system in the entire world and look at how they treat women. Help yourself. We live in a country that was based on Christian principles, which means we have something called murder, and then we have something called, what I just did to poor Paul, we call that involuntary <laughs> stupidity. Yes, that's right. But we call that, we call that involuntary manslaughter. Involuntary manslaughter, because there's the absence of motive. So in our country, hear me, okay, in our country, we differentiate between these two, which is ironic because that comes from our Christian heritage, yet people in church purposely blur them because of their own insecurity and their own rebellious lifestyle. Now, of course, I'm not talking about you guys, just all those other churches in the world. They don't want to differentiate these two. So when Paul says, or excuse me, when James says, listen, if you don't see the way God sees, you're living in sin, which means error. If you don't see the way God sees, first off, you're wrong. Please hear me. If you don't see the way God sees, you're wrong. Because the way he sees is right. And here's the thing, I, I, when I do teen camps, parents would probably be shocked. I do want you to love Jesus. I do. But there's no pressure. And unlike your parents and your pastor, I'm going to tell you the truth. Seriously, I'm a truth speaker. If you don't want to know what you look like in that outfit, do not ask me. Seriously, I'll tell you the truth. Yeah, so don't ask me. So I'm telling you, okay? So when we're talking about Christianity, I, I just want to, this is what you're getting into. Are you listening to me? If you're looking for a fuzzy form of make me feel good, there's other things in town. When we're talking about Christianity, Christianity is the way he thinks is right. The way I think is irrelevant. I have no opinion. My body is not my own. Comes from the book, by the way. My purpose, my destiny, my identity. That's borderline fundamental Christianity. So he's talking to the guy in verse nine and he says, listen, if you don't see the way he sees, you're wrong. Now that in and of itself does not condemn this guy. Being, hear me please, being wrong, which is a form of sin, hamartia, does not condemn you. In fact, I call this two-year-old sin. Unlike the opinions of some millennials, two-year-olds are not normal. It's not cute. They're brats. Yes. Yeah, just, you'll learn. Just, shh, shh. So, they need discipline. They need correction. Why? Because they're not right. And they may be cute to you when they're two, but when they're 17, they're no longer cute. But two-year-olds are not here Two-year-olds are here, and in the Wesleyan denomination, because of something we talk about in terms of, and Nazarene church, something we talk about in terms of prevenient grace, you with me? Something we talk about in terms of prevenient grace, we believe that God does not condemn you for this. 
Meaning we don't believe two-year-olds, even though they're not right, even though you walk by the nursery and one's hammering the other one with a toy, we don't believe that's, that's condemned. We don't believe that two-year-old goes to hell. Seriously, no one walks by the nursery and goes, wow, that kid's going to hell. Man, get him saved like pronto. Okay, no one says that. Why? Because he doesn't know any better. Are you with me? He's an error, but it's not motive. That's what this form of sin is. He's an heir, but he doesn't know any better. So God comes to the guy in verse nine, he says, listen, you're showing favoritism. What is that? The way I see, you don't see, and you're wrong. In fact, you follow the verse and he says, you sin and are convicted. The word convicted literally means exposed. God, who's the truth, comes to your life and says, listen, you don't look like me. You're wrong. You've been convicted. You've been judged. You've been, you've, been, you've been weighed. And you don't look like me. What condemns, this is the big part, what condemns the verse nine guy is not the fact that he's wrong. It's how he responds when God convicts him. And it says, convicted by the law, and actually you can translate as, becomes a lawbreaker. The word lawbreaker is a compound Greek word made up of the words para and bano, which means to step around. It's a choice word. Has the idea that I'm walking, and if you would find it in Greek, secular Greek literature of that day, they would use it as you're walking down the street, there's a big puddle of water, and you've got some awesome Adidas kicks on, and you don't want to get them all all jacked up. So when you see the water, instead of marching through it, you make a conscious decision to step around it. By the way, Jesus uses this term to identify the Pharisees with this story of the Good Samaritan. You got this Jew that's beaten and bloodied on the side of the road, and along comes all these religious leaders and instead of doing what God, would, which was in their law, what they were supposed to do to reach out and help this guy, they pass by. Now, we read that story and say, oh, it's kind of like, well, I should have done that to that homeless guy. That's not what we're talking about. This is literally the idea. He looks at the leaders of Israel and says, you are rebelling against God, which is why they go berserk after the parable. So here's, the, here's what we're looking at in verse 9, okay? I'm going to give you an illustration of this. But in verse 9... John writes, James writes, if you don't see the way God sees, you're showing favoritism, you're focused on the outward. Love and lust, that is for your generation, that's so huge. Lust is not love. It's not love. Love is an inside thing. Lust is a physical thing. It's a user mentality. You don't see like God sees. He says, listen, if you don't see the way God sees, you're wrong. And so God comes to him and, and, and reveals, hey, you don't look like me. But instead of responding like the verse eight guy does, he says, I don't care if I don't look like you, no. And then he becomes a lawbreaker. In the name of Jesus, biblically, eyes up here, you cannot be a Christian and live like this. That is not my idea. In fact, let me give you an example of this. Oh, this is where it gets really intense. Should we have a break, breather? 
Okay, let's go on. Turn with me. Dude, this is so good. This is so good. Turn with me to 1 John. It's easy to find. It's right before 2 John. (laughs) And I want you to go to chapter 5. And this is going to take only a second. But we're going to start at the punchline. And as you're turning there, if, if you ever want to study a book on sin, which as a Christian you think you'd want to know what sin is, you can study Romans which is the best book in the New Testament on sin. The whole book is dedicated to it, but you'll spend the rest of your life (laughs) studying it. Okay, or you could go to 1 John, which is also all about sin, but it uses, John uses very, I mean, he's a fisherman. He uses basic terminology, basic language, you know, uh, and loads it with meaning. In fact, John uses concepts that that even children can understand, like light and darkness, Life and death. If you are a Christian, you have now and will always have eternal. If you are not a Christian and you're rejecting Christ, you are experiencing now, your life is falling apart and will for eternity, eternal is not rocket science. So he uses this easy to understand language. Now I'm going to read you a passage and I somehow made it out of college and all my education without ever remembering this verse. It is a summary of the entire book. It's the punchline. Then we're going to go back and look at a couple things that he says in 1 John. Chapter 5, verse 16. Listen to this. Now he's talking about these two things. He says, if anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. You'd say, hold on. And do pause. A sin that does not lead to death? What does that mean? Well, again, it's not rocket science. Light, darkness, death, life. You say, hold on, so you're telling me there's sin that does not lead to condemnation? Two-year-old. And by the way, the word sin there is hamartia. He says, if anyone sees his brother in error that does not lead to death... In other words, error that they don't know about. A two-year-old, they don't know they're wrong. Which is why you do this. Well, there's a number of ways. (laughs) But they're in error. I'm kidding. Bunch of grandmas get bent out of shape. I'm from the South. I have a beard. I apologize. But if you see your brother committing a sin, in other words, I, I see teens who come in. And they're behaving in ways that if they don't correct it, are going to destroy them. They haven't grown up. I don't know if mom and dad are in their life. I don't know, I don't know the parameters set. And there's, there's, there's practices in their life that I know God doesn't want them involved with. They're not evil. They just don't know to anybody. In fact, James says, if you see a person like that, he should pray. And the whole idea of prayer is not just like go home and sit in a closet. It's involvement. It's intercession. There are five different Greek words for pray in the New Testament. This is the one that says, wrap your arms around. Mentor. Now, notice what he says next. He says, I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. 
And I'm not saying you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there's sin that does not lead to death. So here's what he's saying. He says there's sin that does not lead to death, and then there's sin that leads to death. It's all wrong, but there's sin that doesn't condemn you, and there's sin that does condemn you. The first half of his book, listen to this, the first half of his book focuses on <clears throat> the first half of his book focuses on this kind of sin. Go with me, and this is, we'll do this really quickly. Go back to 1 John chapter 1. The first four verses is an introduction of Jesus, which is the message. Again, if you're, if you're a Christian, you're in a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ your Lord. You walk with him and talk with him. It's not just... Monday, it's a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday thing. And he puts that in, verse, in verses one through four. Then he says this. This is so good. Listen to how plain this is. He says, this is the message, verse five. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. Hear this, please. This is not my opinion. This is not his opinion. He says, what I'm about to tell you came from Jesus. This is the message we heard from him and declare to you. Here's what it is. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we're a liar. This is awesome. Listen to how aggressive this is. God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. If you claim to live with him, yet you're walking in this, you're a liar. He doesn't pull any punches. It's because he's writing a letter. It's like online chatter. If you claim to be this and you walk in that, something's wrong with you. You're not right. It's not complicated. It's not complicated at all. In fact, you come down to verse 8. And in verse 8, uh, and by the way, um, 1 John 1.8 is my favorite verse in the whole Bible, simply because it makes Nazarenes uncomfortable. Now, really quick before I read this, first half of the book is on this kind of sin. He says, God is light. This is real strong. Okay, don't, don't fudge. Well, nobody's perfect. I, that doesn't fly here. God's this. He's not that. If you claim to be in him, you're living in that, dude, find something else. Hinduism. I, did, I do a lot of work in India. Hinduism's awesome. You can do whatever you want. It's great, except for the clothing. But Hinduism, that's for you. Because Christianity is about die to yourself, lose your life, his plan over mine. Really narrow. The liberal world in which we live calls us extremists. Yes, we are. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. God is light, no darkness at all. Now, after establishing that, he says in verse 8, <laughs> this is hysterical. I like to watch you as I read it, if I can do it. If we claim, listen, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. First thing, that's plural. It's in the present tense, which means it applies to everyone who reads it at that time for all time. If anyone in this room claims to be without sin, you are deceived. Well, we're not a sinning religion. Well, can you explain that? If anyone in this, listen, oh, let me read it again, just, and don't be mad at me, I'm just reading this. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Guess which word for sin that is? Is it this one? 
Or is it this one? Okay. (laughs) It's this one. In other words, he says, listen, if you claim to be without error, I'm perfect. Just waiting to go to heaven. First off, ask around. Seriously, start with your wife. By the way, entire sanctification, I'm an, you know I'm an ordained elder in our denomination? <laughs> They're giving those things away. But I'm, I'm legal. I'm legal. When you look at the message of sanctification, which is biblical, it begins with and, and ends with prevenient grace, with the first crisis moment in your life being initial sanctification, where God comes in, you no longer live in rebellion, he is your Lord and you're saved. Entire sanctification is where he opens your eyes, where you're living out of your nature and not out of his nature, and you need a nature change in your life, and it's a crisis. Doing good, right? Okay. Okay. Then you come to, that's, that's entire sanctification. Ultimate sanctification, that's where you croak, and then from entire sanctification until ultimate sanctification, there's this period which marks most of your Christian life. It's called growth in grace, which means you continue to grow. Well, what does that look like? That means for the rest of my life, God reveals areas of my life that I don't even know exist, and as soon as he reveals them, I respond to it. If we claim to be without error, we deceive ourselves. You know how many Nazarene churches I've been to where I've talked to old-time saints who haven't been to the altar in 40 years? Shame on you. I tell teens all the time, the senior adult you model your life after is the senior adult who lives here. The one who brags how they got saved 40 years ago and they've been oh, blah, 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 blah ever since. Just talk to your mom or dad. But we should be living in a constant state of being morphed into his likeness. Because I'm not without error. I'm really close, but I'm, I'm not without error. And so I live in a constant state. Now, by the way, this is where the famous verse 9 comes in. But if we confess the areas of our life that are error, he is faithful and just to not only forgive us of our errors, but purify us so we don't ever look like that again. (laughs) That was was like a big point of the sermon. (laughs) If you have error, everyone has error. Everyone everyone has room for growth has areas of their life where they don't look like him. Which is why we, listen teens, it's why we still come to church. It's why we, you know, it's why we sit through those sermons every week. We come and we worship and raise our hands and say, I'm wide open for new truth. And he reveals, and I go, wow, I don't look, I didn't know. And then I make myself with my walker right down to the altar knowing that when I go down, I'm not getting back up. (laughs) And he's going to transform me. Guys, that's Christian. Everyone has this. So when you hear someone come up and say, well, no one's perfect, absolutely. Well, everyone has sin, totally understand. But what do you mean by that? Like everybody knocks off a gas station once in a while? No. You mean I have areas in my life that I don't, I don't see that I, I have room for growth and yeah, we all have that. He spends the first half of his book elaborating on this. You should do a study. You should do a study. 
He spends our first half of his book elaborating on that. The second half of his book, which begins in 1 John, this is the last part, chapter 3, the last half of his book, he talks about rebellion. Now, where does rebellion, are you with me? Where does rebellion come into play? Rebellion comes into play is when God comes to you and says, I don't look like this, and I don't want you to look like that, and you look at him and say no. And you try to justify it. He says, I don't look like this. And you say, I don't care. What God just says is, don't be my son. It's not rocket science. God does not, in the Old Testament, there was absolutely no forgiveness for for murder. God did not tolerate rebellion. He's trying to save us. There's this lie that circulates in the church that if you don't live your life right, God's going to send you to hell. God doesn't send anyone to hell. You choose hell over being saved. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him, look at him and say, that's who God wants me to be, does not have to perish but has eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And whoever does not believe, God does not condemn, they stand condemned already because they not believe in the name of God's one and only son. Give or take a couple words. It's basically what it says. So the idea is that God doesn't send us, we have this, there's the biblical picture is that man, man in his brokenness is literally headed for destruction. And Jesus comes and goes, dude, I got great news. I paid the price. You're off scot-free. Let me in your life. Let me save you. Let me fix you. Let me open your eyes. Let me transform your heart. And when you say no, you're saying, I don't want to be saved. I don't want to look like God. I don't want to look like the person he's called me. I don't want to look like you, Jesus. I like using women for myself. I like living for money. I like that form of entertainment. And when that person goes to hell, God will weep. Because he's done everything so you don't have to go there. Listen, hell was not created for you and I. Hell was created biblically for the devil and his angels. And you were never to go there. So literally, the first half of his book, he talks about error. Those who refuse to be fixed do this. Listen to what he says about it. Last verse. Um, Hold on. I'm out of shape. John chapter 3, beginning at verse (laughs) 4. Listen, teens, I'm not... Listen, I'm just going to read it. Listen how graphic this is. I'm going to stop and pause, but follow. Chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. You're like, hold on, he switched gears. He's talking about a different kind of sin. What's parabiano? It's literally translated to remember in James as lawbreaker. What's lawbreaker? I know exactly what you say. I know exactly how you feel and I don't care. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has ever seen him or known him. Dear children, don't let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Because God's seed remains in him, he cannot go on sinning. He's been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. 
Dude, that is not rocket science. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not a teen. I've never been a teen. I'm not trying to be your friend. Listen to me. Hello. You can talk in a minute. College student, just, if you want someone to tell you the truth, that's not trying to be your friend or buddy-buddy or try to be cool. I'm not cool. I totally get it. I, we'll talk about some of that later. But I'm telling you, you cannot live in rebellion against God and call yourself a child of God. Don't let anybody sucker you. Well, they go to church. Satan comes to church every Sunday and parades around as an angel of light. You can Google that. It's biblical. The greatest, the only deterrent, the only deterrent to you being the kind of person God wants you to be is for you have an area of your life where you know you don't look like him and you say, I don't care. Amy's going to come. And uh, hear this, just real quick. I stopped back when I was in college. That's really annoying, so whatever we're doing, let's just take them up, back up, or whatever. Right, just start kicking things, throwing stuff around. Praise the Lord. When I was back in college, I was insecure, and I would get my self-esteem based off of how you would respond. And a lot of it was fear-based. I, I was called to an evangelist, and I felt like if I didn't preach well and people respond, people wouldn't have me back. Well, 25 years later, I could care less. I don't like his beard. I could care less. Just like I could care less. It is my call by God to open up the word and say this is the absolute truth. And I trust in his spirit in these moments that if you have an area of your life that your wife doesn't know about, that your husband doesn't know about, that your kids don't know about. I don't care how old you are. You need to respond. I don't know how we got into this idea that I was in uh, Butler, Pennsylvania about seven or eight years ago. And in the service there were these two little rowdy old ladies literally sitting over on that side still remembering what they look like they've both since passed best friends both been through a few different husbands outlived them and they were roomies and they, the church loved them but they were a handful in the service one of them stands up and she goes, what we need is what was going on when I was a teenager. We used to run the aisles and have revival and respond to the altar. And as she was sitting down, her friend stood up. 100, no embellishment, 100% truth. And her friend stands up and goes, that's not true. She goes, we didn't run the aisles and we didn't go to the altar. She goes, it was our parents who did that. And we sat there and watched them. And she goes, we've been watching ever since. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've been at, at the front door shaking hands when they leave and a sweet little old lady, they come up and they pat your hand and they say stuff like, pray for me. That sermon was for me. And 
I struggled. I said, well, I didn't see you respond to the altar. Oh, no, I wouldn't do that. Are you kidding me? We're, we're teaching them. Are you saying I can't sit in my seat and pray? I do think there's something about if you can't confess. At the end of the book of James, he actually says, confess your sins to one another that you may be saved. And if you can't confess him before men, you're in trouble. And then the reality of it is I've seen guys who come in and they're embarrassed. And I'm not going to air your dirty laundry. It's nobody's business between you, between you and God. But you need to respond. You'd say, why? Well, how many times have you come into the service and sat here and said, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to be different. Good luck with that. Seriously, good luck with that. Let me finish. No one ever stops sinning. No one ever stops rebelling against God. You have to be delivered from rebelling against God. You have to be delivered from sin. If you could stop sinning, you don't need Jesus. You have to be delivered. You have to experience deliverance. In other words, you have to come to a place in your life where you come down and you kneel before him and say, I don't look like you. You've been talking to me about this area of my life. I'm in absolute bondage. I cannot quit. I'm addicted. I'm hiding from my, my world. My da, da, da. Help me. And wham. <laughs> it's called the good news. You can be who God wants you to be. You should see your faces. Jesus, man, I love you with all my heart. And I want to be a man of your word. And I want to be a herald to the next generation. And I want to paint a picture of what the, using the word of what a, what a Christian, what a child of God looks like. And I pray you would tug on their hearts. I pray you would call young, young men and women, young teens, young college students, get out of their seats and stop sitting on the fringes and be leaders. We cannot afford to have any more religious-filled churches in the next generation. It's going to die. And Lord, I don't want to be bound up in rebellion anymore. I don't want to have any area of my life to not look like you. Jesus, I believe you're speaking tonight. I believe you're dealing with hearts. I believe you're dealing with marriages. I believe you're dealing with some senior adults who have toyed with things their whole life, who've been abused, who've kept things hidden, who've harbored bitterness, and it comes out in what could be described as their personality. All the ugliness and sewage that the world and the enemy throws at us, it does not have to, doesn't have to stain us. Come in these moments, heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Is he speaking to you tonight? And if he's not, I totally get it. And you're not living in rebellion, you're good. But two things. If you are, there's such freedom in just not caring what other people think. You can say, hey, God's dealing with me and he's been dealing with me in an area of my life where I don't look like him and I just laid that at his feet tonight. I ask for forgiveness. I ask for, for deliverance. This applies in this room. We're all equal from the pastor down to the lowest child. So you can respond. Number two, if it's been 30 or years since you've been to the altar, if I were you, I would respond and say, Jesus, reveal to me the area of my life where I don't look like you because apparently I'm missing it. Because I, I need to go to a new level.
I need to go to a new level. We're just going to tarry for a couple minutes and we're going we're gonna to worship. We're going to tell him how great he is. If you have a son or a daughter, a grandparent, a friend that you want to come down, and this is so crucial, and you want to come down and put your hand around them and pray with them, they desperately need. Don't pry. Don't pry. Just pray for them. Which is also a great time to come down and pray for yourself because people will think you're coming down to pray with someone. You can sneak in one for yourself. We're good with that. But do we have any elders, any godly people that would like to come down and pray with those here? Anyone? We're going to just spend some time in prayer. And uh, I think when Pastor Paul thinks it's time to close, he's going he's to come and dismiss us. He's our pastor. And uh, I want you to come back tomorrow night at 7. We're going to be, we're gonna be uh, we got you in and out of here tonight in an hour and five minutes. So we'll, uh, if you have to go, I totally understand it. But uh, I want you to come back tomorrow. You're going to love it. We'll get you in and out of here responsibly. And uh, we're just going to discover, <laughs> we're just going to discover what it means to be a child of God and surrender to that. Amen. Jesus, we want to pray for those who are at the altar this evening. And Lord, it's very, very plain in scripture where two or three are gathered, literally somehow you are present. Lord, there's a number of us who've come down to the altar tonight carrying a variety of burdens. Just areas of our life where you've, some of us, it's, it's, it's extreme. Areas where we absolute, absolutely know we've been saying no to you. And then there's others that are just going to need to go through counseling. I give you all of those details, Jesus. You, you're, you're so magnificent in how you work these things out. But in the initial response, Jesus, and in the initial repentance, I come into agreement with them where the two or three are gathered. I, I come into agreement. And we as a body who are praying for them, we come into agreement, Jesus, with what you want to do for their life. And if you're praying tonight, whether it's at the altar or even at your seat, you just need to say, Satan, I come out of agreement with you. I am not going to find this attractive. I'm not going to find this exciting. I'm not going to indulge. I'm coming out of agreement. Because when you sin, you come into agreement with the enemy. And Satan, I come out of agreement with you in the name of Jesus. And Jesus, I come into agreement with you for your plan for my life. Change me. Open my eyes. I give you permission to enter every area of my life. Change my desires so they're your desires. Change my heart so it matches your heart. Let your longings be my longings. Let your passions be my passions. I come into agreement with you in this area of my life. So Father, in these moments, as you're speaking to us, and <laughs> we're going to feel lighter. Father, we've seen people get up from the altar and literally their countenance changes. They just look different. We are different when you're in. We love you tonight, Jesus. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. When Pastor Paul thinks it's time to close, he's going he's gonna to close us here just in a couple minutes. So let's just remain in an attitude of prayer.